You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. When you've done something for over 30 years, you get to be pretty good at it. That's certainly the case with Rick Fusen, president of Pacers Sports and Entertainment. He oversees operations of one of the most magnificent arenas in the country, the Banker's Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. How much did this year's Super Bowl benefit the host city, Houston? We'll dig into the answer with Holy Cross sports economist, Victor Matheson. Are the New York Islanders ready to skate northward to Hartford? What's all the talk about? We'll get the answer from SB Nation's Dan Saracini. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us the Phoenix Coyotes have hit a big speed bump on their way to a new arena. But first, the stadiums beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, forget the Mexican border fence. Grabbing the headlines this week, permanent fencing the Vikings are looking to add all the way around their new U.S. Bank Stadium. The Vikes say it's a security issue. Stadium management is balking at the idea, saying the venue needs to be accessible to the public. The team did place temporary fencing around the venue this past season, but feel a more permanent solution is needed. No word on if President Trump has been consulted. Well, the Oakland A's are honoring one of their most celebrated players. The team will name the playing field at the Oakland Coliseum Ricky Henderson Field. A special ceremony has been scheduled before the A's home opener to commemorate the naming. Rumor has it, Ricky likes it. A number of teams have announced ticket price changes. No surprise that being a Golden State Warriors season ticket holder will be more costly next season. Increases vary from roughly 15 to 25 percent. Prices on the cheapest seats will increase from $32 to $40 a game, while courtside seats will jump to just over $700 or $30,700 for the season. Meanwhile, in the NFL, despite a 3-13 season, the Chicago Bears will increase ticket prices an average of 2.6%. The Cleveland Browns are actually slashing ticket prices after their horrible season. And the L.A. Rams, after one season in Southern California, will keep prices status quo. Since their loss in the Super Bowl, the Atlanta Falcons report selling hundreds of new personal seat licenses for their new Mercedes-Benz Stadium. The total number of PSLs sold to date is just over 46,000. The PSLs are one-time fees for the right to buy Falcons season tickets. And an Oakland Raiders fan is launching a GoFundMe campaign to raise $650 million towards a new Las Vegas stadium. James Flynn says his effort is in response to casino mogul Sheldon Adelson backing out of a deal to help Raiders owner Mark Davis build a new Vegas venue. Late this past week, nearly $1,000 had been raised. Bill, that is the very latest. (laughs) 
Thanks, Jeff. The Super Bowl is over, and all that is left is the counting, as they like to say in the old gate receipts business from years ago. And the counting is all about who made what and how much after Super Bowl 51 in Houston, which was an exciting game. We're going to get into that, talk about the real impact financially of this event, and Victor Matheson is going to help guide us through this topic. Victor is an economics professor at the College of Holy Cross. Victor, great to visit, and I suppose the best place to start is just how did Houston make out? Uh, The NFL thinks that the economic impact of the Super Bowl is somewhere between $350 to $700 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if you actually look back at cities that have hosted the Super Bowl, uh, economists not associated with the NFL have come up with numbers that are a fraction that size. Uh, We typically come up with numbers somewhere between $30 and $130 million. Uh, nothing to uh, turn your back on, but also a fraction of what's being claimed. How much of this money, the revenues that come in, actually somehow gets funneled back to large corporations, which could own anything uh, from hotels to transportation venues, you name it. Uh, And a lot of that, I would think, would be funneled to places like New York or San Francisco. How much of that actually stays in Houston? That's exactly right. Uh, well, the you know the biggest big corporation who stands to make huge amounts of money is, of course, the NFL itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about the fact that they sold over a hundred million dollars of tickets to the game, and uh, none of that was shared with Houston, and uh, they didn't, the city of Houston didn't even collect the usual sales taxes that you would normally collect on that. Uh, there was another hundred and fifty thousand people went to the NFL experience. Uh, They paid $35 a pop for that. Uh, That's about $5 million of revenue all going to the NFL. Uh, There's one big corporation that's doing quite well in the Super Bowl, and of course, that's the NFL. Victor, here's something that's probably a little harder to get a handle on, and that is the value of the actual beauty shots, if you will, of Houston. And something like this does generate a lot of beauty shots of the city, where the city is favorably perceived, of course. How do you go about putting a number on that? So there's no doubt that there are some intangible benefits associated with the Super Bowl. Uh, Obviously, Houston gets to be the center of attention for an entire weekend. Uh, That being said, there's a real question about how long any of that attention lasts. I think we'll look back in a year or two And I think a lot of people will remember this Super Bowl. They'll remember that uh, Brady and the Patriots came back from the biggest deficit in Super Bowl history. A really improbable win, the first overtime game. But we're not going to remember that this game took place in Houston. Can you speak to what it takes to actually bid and just how much does a city have to sell or give away just to put themselves in a position where they can get a game like this? About a year ago, there were actually leaked documents of the uh, of the bidding going to Minneapolis next year. And so those were put out. And so we got a little peek of what it looks like. And uh, in that 150-page bid document, The most common phrase you see, it appears over 200 times, is the phrase, at no cost to the NFL. Hmm. So what does the NFL get out of the uh, the bid? They get an entire stadium free of cost. Uh, They get to sell all the tickets and keep all the money from that game with no uh, regular sales taxes. Uh, They get an entire host hotel for a week at no cost to the NFL. Uh, They get a large fleet of limousines. Uh, They get uh, police 
security personnel uh, at no cost to the NFL for each of the uh, NFL owners. Uh, they hit priority in landing spaces at the airport at no cost uh, to the NFL. They get a million square feet of convention space to host the NFL experience. I think you see the pattern here. Uh, there's a huge amount of stuff that the NFL gets. Uh, they don't pay for any of it, and they get to keep all the revenue on it. It seems in recent years, Victor, that we've been looking at a situation almost where just brand new stadium situations can apply. They seem to be lining up as each one goes online. The first thing they do is they bid for the Super Bowl. Is, is that going to be kind of a point of entry here? Are we going to see everybody else with a five or 10 year old stadium totally out of the process? Yeah, so the NFL fairly explicitly says, if you build a big new stadium, largely a taxpayer expense, you're going to get a Super Bowl out of the deal. And uh, kind of the, uh, the bargain is, they say, well, look, put $500 million of taxpayer money into a stadium and you'll get a Super Bowl. And that's like $500 million. It's almost like getting a stadium for free. Of course, that's only right if it's really $500 million coming in from the Super Bowl, mm -hmm. which, of course, it's not. Uh, but that's a clear pattern. Um, next year, the, the game is in Minneapolis, new stadium there. Year after that is Atlanta, new stadium there. Uh, year after that is in L.A., a stadium that actually hasn't been, uh, been built yet. And as a matter of fact, Houston, so kind of a little bit of an exception to the, the rule here, uh, this is uh, about a 20-year-old stadium or a 15-year-old stadium, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but uh, most of the observers think that Houston got this game uh, very specifically to punish Miami, who wouldn't build a new stadium for the NFL team there. Victor, we want to thank you for the visit. I know you study this, and you're looking at the hard dollars, so it's good to take a real good look and see what we are actually looking at. Uh, civic pride and hard dollars sometimes are very, very different. Victor, we thank you for the visit. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Victor Matheson, an economics professor at the College of Holy Cross, and we thank him as our guest. Stand by now. Coming up next, we're going to take a peek inside Banker's Life Fieldhouse with the president of Pacer Sports and Entertainment, Rick Fusen, and we'll find out what it takes to run an NBA arena. That's next on SB Nation Radio. like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep. Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. I will not soon forget the first time that I saw what we now know as the Banker's Life Arena. It was a tall order when they designed this building. 
because it was a building that replaced a wonderful basketball arena in Market Square Arena in Indianapolis. This is the new home court for the Pacers, and it has received multiple awards. It's our pleasure to visit about this building with a guy who goes to work there every day, Rick Fusen, the president of Pacers Sports and Entertainment. Rick, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Um, you know, it's great to, to be uh, around these great buildings. I've had the opportunity to run both Market Square Arena and uh, Conseco yeah. Fieldhouse when it opened and now Bankers Life Fieldhouse. So it's, it's a great opportunity. We're in our 18th season. Think about wow. that in Bankers Life Fieldhouse. <clears throat> and so uh, we've seen a lot of things come and go and some change, but this building's got great bones. I remember when they built it, even though the projection system wasn't complete, it was built in anticipation of full HD, even when we didn't have it. That shows you what the thinking was, what an amazing building it was. Yeah, there's no question about it. We had, we had a lot of people. Uh, I'm, I'm in my 33rd season with the Pacers, Jeez. and you know, we've got people who've been there 40 years. We've worked together for a long time, both from the basketball side, the operational side. So when we were designing uh, Conseco Fieldhouse, uh, when it opened uh, in 1999, we, we thought about the future, and we thought about how we could do things where you wouldn't have to maybe rebuild a whole building like we w- did when we went from Market Square Arena to Conseco Fieldhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has we, we made it with great bones. We had a good backbone, good fiber, good different things like that. So we could just change things as we go forward rather than have to rebuild something totally. Why is this building so special? Because it does have a basketball signature, which is truly unique to this building. It has not been replicated anywhere else. No, it was really the first... Uh, the first basketball facility in the NBA uh, to have a retro feel, like Camden Yards did in baseball. But this has a retro feel. So we, we said for years it's it's a high-touch building rather than a high-tech building. But we were always prepared for high-tech uh, along with yeah. the high-touch. It's yeah. a little bit museum, and at the same time it has a very, very tight uh, basketball setting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Market Square Arena was a, was a hockey rink in the middle, but it had very steep decks. So, yes. uh, it, you know, it, it was a very loud building. This building has three different decks in it, so we'd have all, all the amenities of, of today's uh, current kind of buildings. It uh, has the, the barrel roof um, that, that mimics certainly uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse um, yes. and, and, and other Quonset Hut buildings, uh, you know, around the state of Indiana and other places where they play basketball. So it has a charm. It has a history. It has a great feel to it, but it's a basketball basketball building first, but we can still do uh, all the events. We do over 200 events there uh, each year. We have college basketball and high school basketball and the circus and concerts and, you know, on and on and on. We've had a world swimming championship there. Uh, so, I mean, it's yeah. you're only limited by your imagination. Uh, so it is a, the, the, the field house is, in fact, a, a multi-purpose building, but it's basketball first. You know, this building has had to compete as all buildings do for various assignments, not just the NBA, but say, for example, the Big Ten has used it extensively, and that's tough competition. You're competing against some of the best buildings around. I would have to think that speaks very highly to the high regard generally for the for this very, very unusual building. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. We've um, you know, been around a long time in Sports Corp and with the, the Visit Indy group that we're, in fact, we're working on trying to get the All-Star game, the NBA All-Star game back. So we're all working right. all the time together, both the private and, and, and the public uh, parts of our city. We've done a very 
good job over the, the last 40 years in terms of going together, trying to get things. Certainly we've had success with world basketball and NCAA events and, and the Big Ten. We had to go bid for that, and so we're competing for that with, with uh, Chicago, with the United Center, and now with the Washington Building and with the Brooklyn's and with Madison Square Garden, etc. But but Indianapolis and, and Indiana, you know, I mean, we, we are the hotbed of basketball and continue to be the hotbed of basketball. And in Indianapolis, downtown Indianapolis, in, in my humble opinion, is the best downtown of any place in the country. The hockey building in St. Paul had that same type of approach, even outside of the sport. That really speaks to it in my mind. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, even the, the building in Columbus, Ohio, uh, you know, they, they came over. Uh, and, they, and there's been all kind of people look at the thing. We just yeah. had, had the owner of the Sacramento Kings in to visit as well when the Kings were playing there. And they just opened a new building and a great building. I saw it myself. But he was in awe uh, about some of the things that he would see in our building uh, wow. yet 18 years later. You're getting down the road. This building is approaching 20 years of age. I can't believe that. How do you actually improve a building that is that good to begin with? Well, we're doing that now. I think you can always improve. There's no question about it. I don't think I don't think uh, you ever want to stand, stand still, sit still. Uh, we, this year, just this year, we've made some uh, major changes in terms of our club downstairs. It was the courtside clubs now become the light bound courtside club, um, and, and it's a totally different view. And it's a it's a more open. It's a little more hip. It's got a better feel to it it's not you know 18 years ago when we opened up it was a little heavier wood because that's that's what how we designed it we opened it up a little bit and make a better feel for those folks mm-hmm. who go in there we also took some suites out in the south end uh, of the of the bowl and made it into the cells uh, group loft which is a all-inclusive uh, we have theater boxes and low seats and so we're trying to find different ways for different segments of our community to buy different things we have suites uh, we have the legends which is all-inclusive now we have the sales group loft which is a different kind of inclusive and then now we have the Lightbound Courtside Club, which is a, a, a great uh, entertainment space. So we have different things for different people, um, and you got to keep going forward. We've redone our concession stands. Uh, next year we'll we'll put LED lights in. Uh, you know, we're looking at all kind of different things. We've improved some seating decks. Um, so we're, we're looking at put a new scoreboard in. Uh, Herb uh, Simon allowed us to put a new big scoreboard in, which is full HD, uh, about four years ago, and it's big, big, big board. And uh, you know. <laughs> you can't miss it it's like being at home yeah. in front of your television so there's no reason for you not to come and enjoy the game and also feel like you're oh, yeah. uh, watching it on television so you make little tweaks to it now as we go forward i think uh, there'll be other major things that we'll need to do to the building in terms of making it uh, continue to update it obviously as we get new generations coming uh, to the game of basketball they're looking for different things so we're going to have to yeah. make sure that we uh, watch that and make sure that uh, at the right time uh, that the building gets revamped uh, as we go into the future Rick, we want to wish you well. Congratulations. I have a feeling you are a dynamo when you step in front of people and talk about this. I think people pay close attention, and that speaks very well to your prowess as an executive. We all know how important the sales aspect of this is. You make an awfully good case, and I know your dad would be particularly proud of you. He was quite a wordsmith, and it looks like it's rubbed off really well. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, We enjoy being with you, and we love the sport of basketball. We love our city, uh, and we look forward to inviting everybody to come uh, and visit if you haven't, and come back if you have. All right, very good. Rick Fusen, our guest. He is the president of Pacers Sports and Entertainment. Bill Hazen saying stick around. We have more coming up on SB Nation Radio. 
How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Well, now it is time to talk shop once again. We examine this week's stadium headlines for that week. Turn to Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. Stadiums USA is your one-stop shop for everything related to stadium news and information. And you can listen to the podcasts of our program. Test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site. It's all waiting for you at stadiumsusa.com. All right, Mark, let's go over some of the stuff they're going to see when they drop by that website. And uh, it's back to the drawing board in Phoenix for the NHL's Coyotes. A very interesting story here. You know, they've been looking for a new venue. Supposedly, they were going to partner with Arizona State, and suddenly the curtain came crashing down. What happened? The Coyotes do business in a very unusual way. Over the past year, they've been negotiating with Arizona State University to build an arena in Tempe. But before the university agreed to anything, the Coyotes announced that they had an arena partnership. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Arizona State Board didn't like the fact that they announced this without their approval. So they quickly, they pulled out of the plan. And they have uh, no interest in working with the Coyotes on building an arena in Tempe. Supposedly, the Coyotes announced that the plans were finalized. I don't know how this all happened and how you can work with a partner over a year and then come out with a statement that the partner hasn't even seen. Well, it is interesting, Mark, because there is a rumor swirling around that the Coyotes could be headed out of town and to the Pacific Northwest. Anything to it? Yeah, there is something to it. The rumors are circulating now because of the fall apart of the Arizona State talks. They sent a representative to both Portland, Oregon and Seattle, and they looked at the two arenas there. The Portland area has the Moda Center. Seattle area has the Key Arena. Moda Center is currently the home of the Portland Trailblazers. And so that arena could be adapted for hockey very easily. The Key Arena has no major tenant right now in Seattle, and that would require a major renovation project to get it ready for the Coyotes. Coyote management has denied being involved in any type of search, but we know privately that they did have officials on a stadium tour of both of those facilities very recently, and they've been involved with plans of the uh, key um, arena as far as renovation. They've been uh, looking in on those plans. So something that's probably very realistic at this point, we think they've burned enough bridges in Phoenix that uh, the Northwest is probably going to be their next home. But the Coyotes have another problem, and that's on the ice. (laughs) 
they're not very good. Yeah. They're currently in seventh place in the Pacific division and they won't make the playoffs at that rate. You got to improve the product. That's going to help an awful lot. Speaking of the Northwest, Mark, we're starting to hear the tom-toms beating once again regarding the original site that was proposed for a new arena. You may remember that wasn't in the key arena area up on the north side uh, on the uh, fairgrounds there. It was the area where the football and baseball stadium is on the near south edge of downtown, right on the water's edge there. Uh, What's going on there? Well, there's some political arm wrestling going on right now in Seattle over a possible new arena there. The main battle seems to be whether there's a certain street that would be sold, uh, including the land around the street, if the new arena is to be built with private money. The second part of the confusion concerning Seattle is the key arena itself, which we just talked about in conjunction with the Coyotes. There are two firms currently preparing renovation proposals for an April 12th deadline. That renovation proposal is to renew the key arena and get it ready for either an NBA team or an NHL team. The mayor has said there will be only one sports arena in town, either the renovated key arena or a new, what they call the Soto Arena. Mm -hmm. Um, The Soto Group is actively pursuing both an NBA and NHL franchises. They're not going to probably find an NBA franchise available, but there are a couple NHL franchises that are possible relocation candidates, uh, along with the Coyotes that are the most obvious ones. So we'll have to see what's going on in Seattle, but there is talk of a new arena, and it would be in a different part of town, but something totally different than Key Arena. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. All right. Are you ready to roll back the clock? I am ready. Uh, There's some interesting things on the calendar this week. 1937, Cleveland is granted an NFL franchise called the Rams. The Rams will begin play the following season at Old Muni Stadium. Remember the mistake by the late? Yeah, I sure do. (laughs) (laughs) They would also play at Cleveland's Shaw Stadium and at League Park before moving to Los Angeles in 1946. In 1961, the Chargers, after just one season in Los Angeles, announced they'll move to San Diego. In their first six seasons in San Diego, they'd play at 32,000-seat Balboa Stadium before moving into what we now know as Qualcomm Stadium. Of course, the team is moving back to L.A. for next season, and they'll be playing in a stadium about the same size as Balboa Stadium at 32,000 seats. And this week in 1990, groundbreaking takes place on the new $102 million stadium for the Baltimore Orioles. The new venue will be known as Camden Yards and would set the bar for future ballpark construction. It is an iconic facility. If you've never been there, make a plan to go to a ball game at Camden Yards. It's a really great place to see baseball. One other item before we leave. All right. Our segment note is Stadium USA Trivia. <laughs> okay. This question, along with many others, can be found at stadiumsusa.com. And I got a good basketball one for you this week, Bill. All right. I'm feeling confident. All right. Which stadium or arena? has hosted the most NCAA men's college basketball championship games. Mm -hmm. Is it Madison Square Garden in New York? Is it Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky? Hmm. Is it the Superdome in New Orleans? Or is it Municipal Auditorium 
in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. You know, I just happened to be thumbing through some of those championship games, and they played a ton of them in Kansas City in the 40s, Mark, at the old Municipal Auditorium. Let's not forget that the NCAA was based in Shawnee Mission, which is a suburb of Kansas City, for many, many years. So I'm going to go with Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City. That is an excellent guess and correct. All right. <laughs> I got one. Municipal Auditorium in Kansas City actually did host many times nine different championships. 1940 <laughs> was the first one. Then they went 41, 42, 54, 55, 56, 57, and then 61 and 64. All right. I got one. What do you think? Mark, thank you. We'll see you next week. Okay, Bill, take care. All right, Mark Medoran, we talk shop. Now, stay tuned. Coming up, we're uh, going to talk about Hartford, Connecticut, because they would like to have the New York Islanders. Could they be on the move out of the Barclays Center? We'll discuss that coming up next on SB Nation Radio. I have a new name I want you to try on for size. How about this one? The Hartford Islanders? Could that happen? The governor of Connecticut has sent a letter to the Islanders inviting the team to play at Hartford's XL Center, but the Isles aren't moving just yet. They're still in Brooklyn at the Barclay Center, but things don't seem to be getting along very well there. And we've talked about this before we're going to go back and visit once again with Dan Saracini of Lighthouse Hockey, the Islanders SB Nation website. Dan, it looks like things are getting curiouser and curiouser here. <laughs> what, are we, what are we looking at here? Uh, well, they, they, uh, you're definitely right. They are getting curiouser and curiouser. Um, <laughs> before the Hartford thing broke, and we'll get to that in a second, uh, about a week before the governor of Connecticut sent that letter that you just talked about. Uh, a report came out in Bloomberg News that it had a very provocative headline that Barclay Center is going to dump the Islanders. But really, if you read the story, what it is is that uh, Barclay Center had a, uh, I guess, a meeting or some sort of uh, financial discussion, and their projections showed that the arena would make more money without the Islanders as a tenant than they would with the Islanders as a tenant. And, of course, they have this strange contract with the Islanders where they pay them uh, money to play there. They collect all the revenue during the year, and then they pay the Islanders a set amount Mm -hmm. at the end of the year, which is a great deal for the Islanders, but obviously not so great for Barclays Center. So the assumption based on that report was that when the the sides could come to this uh, opt-out agreement, uh, which they'll have to address next January, uh, the Barclays Center would opt out because, again, it doesn't make financial sense for them. That's when all of a sudden every politician in the tri-state, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, all of a sudden started coming out of the woodwork wanting the Islanders to play there. The people in Nassau County who had a hand in uh, pushing the Islanders out the door of Nassau Coliseum, they want them back, or at least they say they want them back. Borough president of Queens has said she wants the Islanders to play there. There's a spot in uh, Belmont Park in Nassau County that's owned by the state that they could play. And then finally, about a week later, the governor of Connecticut 
and the mayor of Hartford are just like, hey, we have an arena here. Why don't you come play here? Uh, none of those things are really going to happen. I would love to see the Whalers come back like anybody, but uh, it's not going to be the Islanders, that's for sure. You know, in the old days, there were three teams in New York for several sports. Baseball, there were three, among others. That eventually broke up. The only sport left with three is hockey. And so that hockey hunger and base there, it is spread across three franchises. How much is that impacting fan support specifically for the Islanders? Um, that's a good question. You know, it's, it's funny. I grew up in the 80s and uh, I remember a time when the Islanders were still the pride of Long Island. Like that was the thing that that people loved. And the guys were local. They, you know, you would mm-hmm. you go to the supermarket and you'd see Clark Gillies or you, you know, would go to the same mechanic as Bob Nystrom or your kids were in school with player whatever's kids. And it was really a, a very unique thing to have that these guys lived here and they were part of the community. And obviously it helps that they were also four time Stanley cup champions and one of the best teams <laughs> in the league for a period of about 10 years. And then the team really went into the tank and at the same time with the Rangers got a lot better. So kids growing up today, I mean, they always had the choice, but kids growing up today really do have a choice. They can either root for the Rangers or root for the Islanders. And in most cases, even on long Island, uh, it's, pretty likely that they're going to pick the Rangers because they're uh, much more they're obviously a more metropolitan team they have Henrik Lundqvist they've been to x number of uh conference finals in the last few years and the Islanders are just always struggling they can never seem to kind of like make any headway even when they make the second round of the play they made the second round of the playoffs last year we should be talking about you know how good they are and how they're kind of an up-and-coming team how close and how workable is the Barclays Center in the long run for NHL hockey. Well, that's the funny thing is for all this noise, the most likely scenario is still that the Islanders just continue to play at Barclays Center, just unfortunately making less money than they thought they were going to make because Barclays' projections were off, I guess. Um, That's part of the problem, though, too, is that the arena really needs some serious help, and the biggest part it needs help in is on the ice. Uh, The ice conditions are not good. Uh, I was just... There was just a report on Sportsnet that... um, The NHL is asking players in all arenas to fill out a questionnaire after they leave a game uh, about the ice, whether it was soft, whether it was hard, it was fast, slow, watery, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is for all – this isn't just a Barclays Center thing. They were actually – I was actually very uh, surprised and happy to hear them say this isn't just a Barclays Center thing. This happens everywhere. Uh, But it is a a serious problem at Barclays Center and the players, the Islanders have complained about it. They've done the best they could. But the piping, like you said, it wasn't built for NHL hockey, and the piping that they use underneath the ice is not made with the right materials to keep it cold enough. Uh, it's a problem when it's warm outside. You know, the other stuff that's problems, uh, the sight lines really aren't that great. There's, uh, you know, some issues with uh, getting to the arena with the Long Island Railroad. Uh, I, I work in New York, so I take the subway there, and it's a piece of cake. It's way easier to get to than Nassau Coliseum was. You know, some of the issues I think people could live without, but once that ice issue became a serious, serious problem, uh, that was almost, I don't want to say the, the nail in the coffin, but that's the real serious thing that they need to fix because some people have called it dangerous. If they can fix it, it's going to be expensive. It's going to take a long time and you, it's going to require Barclay Center to tell some, you know, musical acts or circuses or wrestling to, you know, not play at the building for a certain amount of time. 
and that's going to hurt their bottom line too. So they're probably not going to be very willing to do that, uh, which again is going to hurt you know their case and the Islanders' case in making a new agreement with them. Well, Dan, we'll certainly check it out through Lighthouse Hockey, the Islanders' SB Nation website, and I know you'll keep us informed very definitely. Fascinating discussion, just like the last one, which was very interesting. We had a lot of fun. Dan, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Bill. Anytime. Let me know. Dan Saracini of the Lighthouse Hockey Blog, part of SB Nation. Bill Hazen saying we hope you enjoyed us. Come on back. Be with us next week for Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio.